150 years ago, the idea of cells moving around in your body, protecting you from disease, would have seemed like complete fantasy. Fast forward to today, we don't just know those remarkable cells exist, but we can visualise them in vivid detail. In this episode, we meet a clinician researcher who has combined his expertise in medicine and microscopy to unravel how our immune system works and how to stop it from going wrong. You're listening to Medical Minds, the podcast that takes you inside the labs at the Garvin Institute of Medical Research. I'm your host, Dr. Vivian Richter, and with me here is Professor Tree Fan, head of the Intravital Microscopy and Gene Expression Lab at Garvin and immunologist at St. Vincent's Hospital, Sydney. Welcome, Tree. Hi, Viv. Thank you. It's great to be here. Tree, I heard your career path started off at the dinner table when you were a kid. Yeah, so we were refugees. We were boat people, came to Australia in the late 70s, and Dad had to learn English and uh, go back to medical school again. So a lot of time I actually would help Dad with his study, and I spent a lot of time surrounded by his medical textbooks, which really initially sparked my interest in infectious diseases. But after that, I guess in school, I spent a lot of time in the library. We had a big collection of Scientific Americans, and I started reading and became really fascinated by the immune system. And I think what really, really sparked it off was I discovered this great Australian immunologist, Farline Burnett, who'd had all these wonderful theories about how the immune system worked. What was it about the immune system that really sparked your interest? I think one of the things that was really interesting for me was that unlike a lot of the other medical specialties where, for example, if you, you know, studied cardiology, you had an organ, the heart, and it pumped blood around the body. So it was very concrete. The immune system was really different because it consisted of all, all these cells, many of which we hadn't discovered or hadn't heard of yet. And no one really understood how these cells got together, how they talked, how they you know, sensed what was dangerous, what was not dangerous, and how they could coordinate their activities to make sure that they were protecting you from the outside world without turning on themselves and causing autoimmune diseases. Was it at that point that you knew you wanted to be an immunologist? I became fascinated by one particular molecule that people had discovered and there was a lot of interest in because there was this new area at the time of recombinant DNA technology. Genentech had just started as a biotech company. And the idea that you could engineer proteins to make biologics and then treat immune diseases was really exciting. And it opened up a lot of possibilities. And I thought, oh, well, this could be fun. So tell us more about this new technology. How did this work? Essentially, the idea was that if you had the DNA sequence for a protein, then you basically had a blueprint of how to make it. And what recombinant DNA technology is just essentially using that blueprint and getting cells to make it in a test tube. And then you could do it at scale, mass produce those proteins and purify it, and then make a therapeutic drug out of it. And of course, nowadays, recombinant DNA technology is what sits behind all the blockbuster monoclonal antibodies that we use as biologics to treat autoimmune diseases, to treat cancers. This is probably one of the biggest uh, biotech markets. 
you became fascinated by the idea not only of how the immune system works, but how we can use it to combat disease? I think that was probably one of the most interesting things about the immune system. One of the hallmarks is this amazing ability of the immune system to have specificity. Somehow the immune system can discriminate in the finest detail between different molecules on the surface of a pathogen, you know, a virus or a bacteria, or your own cell. And so that specificity can be harnessed because that allows you to target the cell or the, the disease and leave other cells, you know, avoid off-target effects. And this is a huge problem in the treatment, for example, of autoimmune diseases, because up till now, we still have very, very blunt instruments with which to treat patients that have lots and lots of side effects because they're broad acting, they are non-specific, and they have all these off-target effects. So specificity gives us the first clue of how we might be able to harness the immune system. The other thing about the immune system is its extraordinary capacity for memory. So the immune system encodes the ability to remember a threat that it's encountered before, and then through that, be able to mount very rigorous, really powerful responses the second time around. So those two elements, specificity and memory, are essentially the key ingredients for making a really powerful weapon, if you want to call it that, against you know, infectious diseases and also against cells that might be a threat to your own body, like cancer cells. So one example of how we can take advantage of specificity is that in many autoimmune diseases, we know what the target antigen is that the immune system is attacking. So we can use that knowledge to then flip it around and target the cell that's causing the damage. So in the example of a blistering skin disease called pemphigus, we know that there are these B cells that make antibodies that target a protein called DSG3. And this is a protein that holds your skin cells together and stops it from falling apart. So if we use that DSG3 protein to then target the B cell that's making the antibody, we can then specifically kill only the B cells that's causing the damage. That leaves all the other B cells untouched. That means you can still have an intact immune system, you can still make responses to vaccines, and if you encounter a virus, you can still fight that virus. So that's the sort of approach that we at the Garvin particularly are trying to develop now with our precision immunology program, which is to harness these two powerful attributes of the immune system to develop the next generation of therapeutics. That all sounds very complicated. I'd love to go back to hear about how you came to learn about the immune system. I wanted to be an immunologist when I was in school and my dad was a doctor. My brother and sister had gotten into medical school and I think the school got in all these professors to give me career advice and they all said that if you were really interested in immunology, then you should first study medicine and then you can be a medical researcher. So that's how I started off with medicine. And my parents obviously were ecstatic that I <laughs> decided to follow in their footsteps. They would have been. What was your expectation going into medical school and how did it impact your research going forward? So I guess I had very low expectations at medical school because I thought it was just going to be a drag that I had to go through before I could actually do a PhD and really dive deep into the immune system. 
it turned out to be really good. I met Tony Baston, who was the professor of immunology at Sydney University, and we had lots of conversations. The upshot of which was that he told me, I mean, you not only have to go through med school, you actually have to go and train as a specialist immunologist before you can do a PhD with me. So six years in med school became six years in med school plus another five years of specialist training before I was allowed to do a PhD. At this point, it really felt like one of those Kung Fu movies where you're sitting in the rain outside the Shaolin Temple waiting to be allowed to be admitted. But you were admitted. So eventually Tony said that there was a project and that I was going to go and work with this fellow named Robert Brink. And it was great because... By then, I'd been in clinical practice. I'd been looking after quite a lot of patients with autoimmune diseases. And it was really clear that there was an urgent need to actually understand more about these autoimmune diseases because at the time, no matter what the patient had, we always ended up reaching for high-dose corticosteroids. These are amazing drugs because they kill off the cells of the immune system. So, you know, they can put patients for example, with an autoimmune disease like um, systemic lupus erythematosus or SLE into remission, but it comes at a huge price because, you know, steroids have these terrible metabolic complications, you know, patients become diabetic, osteoporotic, but also because they're so nonspecific and they were very immunosuppressive, we were actually, you know, making patients sick because their immune system then wouldn't be able to fight infections. So, there really had to be a better way. And so I was really keen to learn more about B cells and learned more about how we could target them specifically in a way that was going to not have all these other side effects. A lot of the researchers that we have here on the podcast have spent times overseas. You went to San Francisco. Yeah, so San Francisco was really exciting. But I want to tell you why I went there. So we had developed this model with which to track B cells and not just track any B cell, B cells that were reacting against a specific antigen. And what was really clear was that the B cells was making this decision in the dark to become activated and become a plasma cell. And for me, it was really important to get into that dark space and find out what that cell was talking to, what instructions it was receiving, and how that decision was being made. And to do that, we really needed a new technology. And at the time, intravital two-phonon microscopy was bursting onto the scene. And one of the pioneers of that new technology was Jason's sister at the University of California in San Francisco. To me, it was a no-brainer. The next step in my journey was really to learn this new technology and to really be able to then put the two together, our system of tracking the B cells and a microscope that allows us to see how those B cells were behaving, we packed our bags and headed off to San Francisco. So California, and particularly San Francisco, was a really amazing place to be. I think everything was happening at that time. We had you know, Silicon Valley going off with Apple, YouTube, Facebook, but also there was an amazing amount of biotech going on. And UCSF was kind of like at the center of that. And so at work, we had all these crazy smart people with, you know, even crazy ideas. And I reflect now 10, 15 years later, and they've all turned into amazing discoveries that have really transformed 
not just medical research, but uh, also the practice of medicine. And you came back to Australia after that? Yeah, so I came back to Australia, to the Garvin Institute, and I set about finding ways to bring back this amazing technology that I had learnt at UCSF and to really start building up intravitamic microscopy at the Garvin Institute. What were some of the questions that you were hoping to answer with this new technology? One of the things that actually is really exciting about intravital microscopy, as opposed, I guess, to some of the other ways of approaching science, is that literally we are shining a light into a dark space that no one has ever looked before. So on the one hand, it's incredibly challenging, the technology, the techniques. We are really quite often the only people in the world that can do what we do. And we are very clearly sometimes the first people to see what we're seeing. And that's super exciting. What's even more exciting about that is that we are seeing things that we never had imagined before. And so that's completely rewriting and changing the way we're thinking about the immune system. The problem was that until then, the way we approached studying the immune system was very static. Even with animal models, the way we would try to understand how, for example, the spatial organization of the immune system would be through destructive imaging. We would harvest tissue and then cut slices and put it under the microscope. What we were doing was completely different. We were dealing with live tissue, live cells inside a live animal. And these cells were moving around. And so we were seeing things not only in three dimension, but in four dimensions, because we were able to capture the cell's behavior over time. And this was coming together and generating a completely different picture of the immune system as we understood it. And so that was really exciting because we were starting to appreciate things that we hadn't really thought was important before. So to me, I think one of the great things about intravital microscopy is, as a discipline, I guess, is that it really allows for someone who's really prepared to accept that everything that had been told about how the immune system worked up till then may actually not be as right as they thought it was. What are some of the discoveries that you've made using this form of imaging? Recently, we had a really exciting project that was carried out by a PhD student, Abigail Grutfeld and Wunner Kiao. And working with collaborators at Oxford University, we decided to look at a cell that had been forgotten entirely in the immune system. And this was a cell called a tangible body macrophage or TBM. So when your immune system is activated, the B cells need to go into a structure called a germinal center. And this is kind of like school for B cells, right? Inside the journal center, the B cells divide. So they multiply and they multiply exponentially. And during that process of multiplication, they change their receptor for the B cell receptor for the antigen. And the education part comes in because by changing their receptor, some changes will make them react or neutralize the pathogen better. Others will make it worse. So that you can then select the B cells that are actually going to be able to neutralize better. So that's a process called affinity maturation. But what happens to the B cells that aren't able to bind as well? Or worse still, what happens when the B cell, by changing its receptor, now suddenly reacts against the self, becomes self-reactive? Those B cells die. 
So inside this germinal center, there's enormous amount of cell proliferation, but also then enormous amount of cell death. What happens is that these TBMs, that's their function. Their housekeeping function is to clear up all this dead and dying cell debris. So you might think if you have teenage kids that, you know, telling your kids to clean up your room is kind of like annoying. In the immune system, if you don't clean up the dead and dying debris in the journal center, those can become a source of antigen that can activate a self-reactive B cell. And we know in patients with SLE that there's defective apoptotic cell clearance. So this cell was first described in 1885, and yet we still know very little about it. And one of the reasons why we know so little about it is because it only appears when there's a germinal center and then it disappears. There's not many of them, and they're very hard to isolate. They are incredibly elusive, but that's exactly what intravital microscopy is designed to do, to get inside a live mouse, to capture dynamics over periods of time so that you don't miss the appearance and disappearance of these cells. And so we were then able to track the origin, the function, and the fate of these cells using intravital microscopy. And what's really exciting is that the things that we're learning about these cells now means that actually we can think if you don't clear away this debris, you can get an autoimmune disease called systemic lupus erythematosus or SOE. And one of the problems is that SOE was the disease that the patients that I used to have in the clinic that I couldn't treat except by hitting them hard with steroids and causing all these side effects. And now there are all these new drugs, new biologics that actually can target the B cells. But even those drugs don't work very well in SOE. So we need a new way to think about how we can treat this disease. And so what's exciting about this research is that it's revealing to us that maybe we can target not just the B cell, but also these tangible body macrophages or TBMs. Because if we can improve the ability of these macrophages to clear the dead and dying debris, then we can actually stop that B cell from getting activated in the first place. That cell fake decision that I was talking about for the B cell to become the antibody producing plasma cell, we can stop that before it happens. And that would be really exciting. And then I think the third example of where we can use intravital microscopy for biological discovery we have taken for granted vaccination. I mean, it's one of the great advances in medical science. But of course, vaccination was built on empiricism, which is trial and error. Moving forward, I guess now there's an opportunity to take that trial and error, but also take all the things that we've discovered and learned about how the immune system works. And so if you take the COVID vaccine, this is a vaccine that typically you have two shots, first priming shot, or dose, and then a second booster shot. And so where do you get those shots? This is not something that people have asked systematically because go to your GP and you have the shot in one arm and then the next time you have the shot in the same arm, the other arm, who knows? What's the right answer? So actually this becomes really important because when we talk about the immune system, we have to remember that we're talking about very, very rare cells whizzing around your body. And the key thing is that there aren't many of these cells, and yet somehow they have to work out what's the best strategy to be in the right place at the right time so that when you see the antigen again, you get activated. And so what we showed through intravital microscopy was that when you immunize, you generate a pool of memory B cells that stay in the draining lymph node. That's the gland that drains the skin uh, or, or the tissue where the first shot was made. And 
In addition to that, you generate another pool of memory B cells that can recirculate. So this is kind of like having a sentry at the guard post and then having a patrol running around the body as well. And it turns out that these different memory B cells do different things when they see antigen again, so when they get boosted. So if you come back and boost on the same side, you're activating those sentries. And those B cells will go back into the germinal center, go back to school, and they have the opportunity to diversify, to broaden the universe of possible antigens that they can react to. And they're also, because they're in the germinal center, they have the ability to then fine-tune and tweak it so that they can neutralize with greater and greater affinity, that process of affinity maturation. Whereas if you go on the opposite side, those memory B cells are more likely just to go straight to becoming a plasma cell. So what we're showing is that the site of boosting becomes critically important. Fascinating. You're saying if I'm getting my next COVID booster or I'm getting next year's flu jab, I should have it in the same arm as before? Normally, because you can get local side effects, you tend to use your non-dominant arm. And so it just so happens, and this is the empiricism that I was talking about, it just so happens that maybe as much as 90% of the time, people are getting the, the booster in the same arm, which is what we would recommend. But there's still you know, 10% who, for whatever reason, uh, are choosing to get it in the opposite arm. And we would suggest that by getting your boosters in the same arm, you're going to get a much better quality and quantity of the vaccine response. Tree, you're making some incredible discoveries in the lab, but you have also made some life-changing discoveries in the clinic. Yeah, so I have a clinic at St. Vincent's Hospital where essentially it's like the salon de refuse because I get sent patients that many of the other specialists have come to a dead end in terms of working out what's wrong with these patients. To me, that's really exciting because essentially these are patients that are not contained anywhere in those large volumes of medical textbooks. I think it's a really important clinic because quite a lot of time we have patients who fall outside the box. They're clearly very, very sick and they have a range of symptoms and signs, quite often very debilitating, chronic. But the problem is that they don't fit into any neat category in any of the large volumes of medical textbooks. And quite often they've undergone a diagnostic odyssey. They've seen lots and lots of medical specialists. One of the things about the clinic, I guess, is that because they've seen a lot of specialists and doctors before, then you can be almost sure that all the common diseases have been excluded and what's left are either the really rare or things that just haven't been described before. And so it takes a lot of patience on the part of the patients themselves. And they obviously have been through a long journey. But, you know, I think I learn a lot from the patients and listening to them and use that information to zone in on what part of the immune system might be sitting underneath all their symptoms. And we've just really been lucky because we've stumbled upon a couple of diagnoses along the way. And I think it's been really gratifying to see the impact of having a diagnosis for these patients because it's not just the ability to then have a label for their disease because for a lot of these patients I think that's just been incredibly frustrating many of them feel like they haven't been heard so it can be very very important to have that diagnosis but also many 
of these diagnoses mean that we can reach for a specific treatment that fixes the genetic defect that's causing their symptoms. And the impact of that can be completely life-changing. One recent example that came to mind was about four years ago, I was referred a young man who was at university. He had seen a hematologist who thought he had lymphoma because he had massively enlarged spleen and had very, very low blood counts. But it turned out the reason why his spleen was massively enlarged was because he had very severe damage to his liver. So this was called hypersplenism. And the reason why his counts was low was because the massively enlarged spleen was destroying his blood cells. And when we looked into it, it turned out that actually there was this enormous family history of autoimmune diseases. But also within the family tree, when you looked into it, there over four generations, there were all these strange autoimmune diseases that didn't really quite have a name. Sometimes it would be called systemic lupus erythematosus. There were family members with lymphoma. But what was really scary was that two of the male family members had died at the age of 20, and he was 19, from liver disease. And we were really worried that that was his fate, that if we didn't work out what was wrong with him and didn't find a way to treat him, that within a short period of time, he was going to have the same outcome. So it was kind of like really lucky that only a year or two before, a new disease had been described where they looked at patients with Bechet's and found a mutation in this gene, TNFAIP3. And through our collaborators at Dr. Andrew Williams at the Children's Hospital Westmead, um, we were able to sequence that gene in him and showed that he had the same mutation as that had been described in the original paper. And that was really exciting because knowing that gene was mutated, we could then offer him a specific gene-targeted therapy, which was a TNF blocker. This is a drug that's in common everyday use now to treat patients with rheumatoid arthritis. So we repurposed it to treat him. And he responded really, really well. At one point, we had actually referred him to the liver service at Royal Prince Alfred Hospital because we were worried that he was looking at maybe a liver transplant. But now, you know, he's graduated three or four years later from uni. He's got a scholarship at Oxford University, and I actually think he's going to change the world. So he's really, really super bright. The other thing, I guess, that we were able to do then was, you know, his brother had been sick all his life and didn't have a diagnosis. And once we knew what was wrong with him, we tested his brother, and sure enough, he had the same genetic mutation. And We also diagnosed his sister with the mutation as well. And what that means then is that with these rare primary immunodeficiency diseases, what's been shown time and time again is that the earlier you diagnose and the earlier you can treat the patients, the better they do because they don't suffer that long diagnostic odyssey and they don't suffer the damage to their organs from years of having no treatment. And I think this is the power of precision immunology to be able to offer very specific treatments for the disease. Understanding the genetics of the immune system has really transformed how patients are treated. Is that right? So I'm kind of like super optimistic about this because a long, long time ago, um, Professor Tony Baston told me that at that time there were many, many diseases. We didn't know the cause or the treatments, and there were diseases that were called idiopathic. And he said to me, you know, Tree, in 20 years' time, all the idiopathic diseases will be immune diseases. And he's actually not far from the truth because increasingly we are seeing 
the footprint of the immune system in all sorts of diseases, diseases that we would not have imagined. Atherosclerosis, you know, people with heart attacks, Alzheimer's disease. And so the things that we're learning about the immune system through these studies, through these patients, and then also through these animal models, these are lessons that actually provide instructions on how the immune system works. And we've already seen that come into effect with enormous benefits in the cancer space with cancer immunotherapy, understanding how the immune system regulates itself, how it puts checkpoints in place to make sure that it creates the right response, not the wrong response, and how those checkpoints get hijacked by cancer cells to then prevent immune attack and eradication of the cancer cells meant that now we've got an enormously powerful repertoire which is expanding of these immune checkpoint inhibitors that we're using to not only treat, but actually in many cases, cure cancers. And that's super exciting. And I think that's only the tip of the iceberg because it won't just be cancers that I think the immune system is going to revolutionize. I think we're going to see increasingly immune therapies for the so-called chronic complex diseases of aging. I would say in 20 years' time, I think we'll be seeing immunotherapies being used to treat just about every disease. Tree, the immune system is so overwhelmingly complicated. Do you think we'll ever truly understand it? I think we are deluding ourselves if we think we're ever going to be in a position to fully understand how the immune system works. I think I'm reminded of something I read many years ago where people predicted the end of science because they thought (laughs) all the theories are going to be proven, every piece of knowledge is going to be known. We're generating so much data these days, right? Surely this is going to be the end of science. But actually, I think this is the beginning of science because it's great having an enormous amount of data and it's great having tools like AI, but the capacity to hallucinate, particularly by AI, is enormous. And we really need to have ground truths and we need to have guiding principles and ideas sitting behind that. And in fact, you know, a couple of years ago, Paul Nurse, who won the Nobel Prize, made a very important point, which was that actually we don't need more data, we need more ideas. And to me, I think the way we work in our lab is to actually start with a ground truth, start with what's known, and more importantly, start with an important clinical problem. What's bugging our patients? What's stopping us from treating them? What are the things that's really going to make a difference? Tree, before we let you get back to your research, we want to find out a little bit more about you. It's called The Fast Five. What do you do in your downtime? My favourite thing to do is the Friday Cryptic Crossword by David Assel. Favourite movie? Possibly 2001 A Space Odyssey. I just thought it was amazing because it left so much for the imagination. What's been your best holiday? Best holiday was last year. We went to the South Island in New Zealand, the whole family, and we started in Christchurch and made our way to Queenstown. And we, over a course of a week, did 120 kilometers hiking. And we would watch Lord of the Rings at night and go over the landscape and the scenery during the day. And the kids really got into it. So it was amazing. What's the current book you're reading? So right now I'm reading my dad's memoir, which has just been published. It tells this really amazing, epic story of his life over 90 years, sort of reflecting 
the story of Vietnam, really, you know, from Japanese occupation to French colonial rule, Vietnam War, his time in the concentration camp, and then our arrival in Australia as refugees, as boat people, and, you know, all his struggles. It's called From Vietnam to Australia, Sang's Memoir. Do you follow any sport? Yeah, I love watching sport. I am a wallaby tragic, so I watch all the rugby. So, But I have to say that the last couple of years, I've been really excited about watching the Australian women's cricket team and the Matildas because I think they truly represent what I think Australian sport is about. Professor Trefan, thank you so much for joining us on Medical Minds. Thank you, Viv. It's been a great pleasure to be here. If you'd like to know more about Tree's research or donate to the work we do at Garvin, head to garvin.org.au. And if you've enjoyed this podcast, please leave a review and share with other podcast lovers. I'm Dr. Vivian Richter. Thanks for listening. This podcast was recorded on the traditional country of the Gadigal people of the Aora Nation. We recognise their continuing connection to land, waters and community. We pay our respect to Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander cultures and elders past, present and emerging.